0: This is an hour-long deep dive into ancient, prehistoric Europe. If you'd like to see me making shorter, historical videos, go subscribe to my second channel, where I'm currently uploading every single week. The French province of Brittany has always had a unique history, jutting out as it does into the cold Atlantic. Seafarers have called these shores home for almost as long as people have used boats. From fleets of Celtic Venetii fighting against the power of Rome To Brythonic refugees crossing over the waters from war-torn post-Roman Britain. To Scandinavian newcomers claiming the region for their own. Our story, however, takes us much further inland. And much further into the past. To the rugged centre and the southern coasts of this storied peninsula. For there, astride marshland and forest, sits one of the most impressive megalithic monuments in all of Europe. Like similar, but much later, massive sites in Britain, such as Avebury, the only stone circle to contain a village and a local pub within its henge, Carnac can only truly be appreciated from the air. Home to as many as 3,000 standing stones, this is a monumental area. Added to and remoulded down the long millennia since its initial construction. Long before Rome or the Celts even existed, Before metal had even been moulded here for the first time, this was a sacred landscape. When they were first investigated during the 1700s, the stones had initially been attributed to Druids. Older legends suggested their origins as unfortunate Roman legionaries turned to stone by the wizard Merlin. We know now, thanks to radiocarbon dating, that though the stones remained important down the centuries since their completion, gaining new meaning for each new people that came into the area, Their origins are far older than the Roman or Celtic worlds. Possibly originating as early as around 5000 BC. Today, this landscape remains one of the finest and most captivating examples of megalithic architecture found anywhere in the world. The stones here began life as weathered granite outcroppings, which once extensively covered the landscape, moved into place over the span of generations by the people who lived here, continuing to be remodelled and changed for thousands of years, all the way into the Bronze Age. At first glance, this site may seem perfectly exemplary of the new world that took over here during the 5th millennium BC. A revolutionary new lifestyle originating in the fertile crescent of the Middle East, by way of Anatolia. Steadily covering all of Europe from around 7000 BC onwards. A world based on farming crops and domesticated animals, a way of life which could sustain much higher populations, and thus gradually replaced the much less populous hunter-gatherer societies that held sway in Europe before, eventually culminating in the likes of Stonehenge, Newgrange and the Ring of Brodgar. Yet, the story isn't as simple as this. In the centuries immediately following 5000 BC, Brittany was still very much populated by hunter-gatherers, people who'd called this region home as far as they were concerned since the beginning of time. And whilst the distinction between Mesolithic or Middle Stone Age and Neolithic or New Stone Age isn't anywhere near as clear-cut as Victorian writers may have assumed. The material culture they left behind does suggest very different lifestyles. One very much based within nature, the other beginning to leave it behind for the first time. Debate still rages today as to the fate of those hunters who came before farming. Were they replaced, or did they become part of this new world? Well, here at Karnak, a few carvings may hint at at least some of these people's final fate. Within the dolmen of Coccardo, a passage tomb still covered by its original cairn, is a carving upon a standing stone, reused in its construction. This carving, at least, tentatively dated to around 4,900 BC, doesn't seem to have been made by Neolithic farmers, but by Mesolithic hunter-gatherers. Hinting at this place beginning life as a shrine of the hunters. Maybe even a spiritual last bastion of the old world, standing against the new. We don't have to look too far away to see monumental architecture constructed by hunter-gatherers. Gebekli Tepe being one famous example. Nor do we find a vacuum of artwork during the Mesolithic, fine examples existing thousands of years back in the historical record. If it was indeed Mesolithic hunters who erected the earliest stones at Karnak, whether they had adopted agriculture or not, they weren't a simple people. However, they may have been a desperate one, perhaps driven to ask their gods for aid, as news of this strange new world from the east approached. Of course, the news could have been passed on by trader emissaries, as Neolithic people arrived in France by around 5000 BC, around Pas-de-Calais. Perhaps heralding their approach by telling of monstrous animals, magical seeds, and enchanted artefacts coming their way. And when they did come, which surely they did, did they come as pilgrims, or as conquerors, or somewhere in between, avoiding conflict wherever they could. Was this site at Karnak, in fact, a transitional society, with roots in both traditions? We'll probably never know, but in just a few hundred years, agriculture, domesticated animals, along with pottery, permanent settlements and megalithic constructions took over, changing everything in Northern Europe. The way our ancestors viewed themselves, the world around them and their place within it. Curiously, the English Channel seems to have halted the advance of this new culture for a time, but soon enough it would begin its advance again. We know that Neolithic people from here would soon head into Britain, where, of course, Debate rages as to the exact nature of the Neolithic arrival. In both Brittany and in Britain, we must ask what happened to the hunter gatherers? Some of the last in all of Europe. This video is sponsored by Magellan TV a brand new educational streaming service with over 2000 documentaries to watch on all manner of different subjects. Magellan's producers and curators have brought together an astounding collection of documentaries on history, science, nature, culture and geography. These include films, series and exclusive playlists you can't find anywhere else. Like Netflix, this is a streaming service, but made just for documentary lovers and knowledge seekers. You can watch Magellan anywhere, at any time, on any device, directly through the high-quality app, which also offers a wide selection of content in 4K at no extra cost. There are no ads or limited access at any time, and the best part, new documentaries are added on a weekly basis. There are loads of great documentaries to choose from in Magellan's library, with a huge amount dedicated to ancient history alone. As many of you know, one of my favourite eras is the early Middle Ages, so I've been really enjoying this three-part series on the Normans. Those of you who head on over to MagellanTV.com forward slash History Time, or use my link in the description below, will get a free trial. So, what are you waiting for? Head on over and get yourself some free knowledge. (music) Evidence of the Mesolithic world, or Middle Stone Age, survives today only as fragments. But it does survive nonetheless. Like the people the archaeological record hints at, who lived extremely difficult lives in comparison to the present day, it often does so against the odds, in the form of items, tools, food evidence, and less often, human remains. It's been so long since these people lived. So long that the vast majority of evidence for their lives simply hasn't survived. Especially as newer settlements build and rebuild over pre-existing ones, in particularly habitable areas. For the most part, we have to look to peripheral land to get our evidence. Places left unchanged for thousands upon thousands of years that were never consumed by modern architecture or towns due to their marginal nature. Sites like Star Carr in Yorkshire, Gough's Cave and Avaline's Hole in Somerset, Cramond and the Hebrides in Scotland, and Mount Sandell in Ireland. The people who lived at these sites ...relied entirely on the wild animals and plants that lived around them. Just like they had done for hundreds of thousands of years. Living within nature, not outside of it like everyone after the Neolithic farmers. And unlike later people, they lived entirely at nature's whim having no control over adverse climatic conditions, bad food supply and harsh winters. Their very existence depended on their ability to maintain themselves and their connection with the natural environment, which they knew intimately. In the years after the last ice age, these descendants of mammoth hunters found themselves living in a gradually changing landscape known as the Boreal. From around 8,800 to 5,800 BC, a warmer, drier period than they had ever experienced before which allowed a huge range of specialisms to arise in this new world of birch, alder, hazel, and finally oak. Woodland not too dissimilar to pockets that still exist today. Mesolithic people were still nomadic, and they were still hunter-gatherers, but there is evidence to suggest that they were also much more settled than people had been in this part of the world for a very long time. Certainly since the last ice age, and arguably ever. In this new climate, many people would have lived and died within roughly the same area rather than traversing the immense distances travelled by their predecessors. Instead of mammoth and reindeer on the open tundra, these people hunted red deer and auroch in the wild wood. Roughly speaking, though of course there is a huge amount of overlap with prehistoric categorisations, Mesolithic Britain spanned some 5,000 years. Mesolithic Britain may have been populated by less than 5,000 people, with the highest estimates standing at a meagre 20,000. Compared to the 65 million people who call Britain home today, this was a very sparsely populated place. Apart from your own tribe, you may never see another soul. There is some evidence to suggest that at first, Mesolithic people preferred to stay on coastlines and adjacent river valleys, not often penetrating further inland into the wild wood, perhaps beginning to put down roots in these regions. But, as evidence is so scarce, we can't really be sure. Of course, there is a reason we don't find remains. These people seem to have practised excarnation rather than burial, leaving their people out in the open. It is only at miraculously untouched sites such as in caves in the Mendip Hills of Somerset that we find corpses left in funerary contexts. Unfortunately, many of these sites were simply discovered too early for meaningful conclusions to be derived from them, such as a mass grave of somewhere between 50 and 200 people, discovered at Avaline's Hole in the last years of the 18th century. Red ochre and perforated animal teeth suggested that the bodies may have been dressed for the afterlife hinting at prehistoric Stone Age ceremonies. Unfortunately, riven by war, Britain during those years had other priorities, and much of the collection, tentatively dated to somewhere around 8400 to 8200 BC, is now lost. 1903, however, not far from Avaline's Hole, another remarkable discovery was made. Luckily, in a time when archaeological techniques had been honed and sharpened. This was the discovery of Cheddar Man, some of the oldest modern human remains ever found in Britain, dated to around 7100 BC. Finds like Cheddar Man are so rare that even footprints found in the sand at Formby Point near the Mersey Estuary and Goldcliff on the Severn, dating to this long gone by time, are carefully excavated by researchers. By far the most important information, however, comes from the camps once inhabited by these people. The earliest of which are found at Thatcham in the Kennet Valley. Starkar in Yorkshire, and Cramond near Edinburgh, with later examples too at sites such as Howick House in Northumbria. The one major difference between these people and the animal world being their use of tools, and perhaps even more crucially, the harnessing of fire. Mesolithic settlements would have been imbued with the smell of animal remains, infused into everything these people did. Tools made from animal remains were used for everything, from clothing to houses. But of course, there was a trusted companion too. Domesticated dogs being found at Starkar, the only domesticated animal to predate farming probably used a little like a sheepdog to herd and confuse hunted animals in the forest. Using flint for tools, deer antler for picks, harpoons and needles, animal hides for shelter and clothing, all made with their bare hands by hours of backbreaking work. This was an exhausting life though arguably not an unhealthy one. Hunter-gatherers, by and large, seeming to have a much more varied diet than Neolithic farmers, the latter often relying heavily on grain for survival. Even during this early age, there seems to have been an enduring attachment to particular places. Sometimes, perhaps, used for worship, Just like later pastoralists of the Eurasian steppe, they didn't roam randomly, knowing their home intimately. Mysterious post holes found in Mesolithic contexts even suggests some kind of ritual activity, perhaps even forebears to the stone circles of later ages. It's even been suggested that several Neolithic holy sites may have had Mesolithic antecedents, in a situation not too dissimilar to early Christian churches being built atop pagan shrines. In around 8000 BC, on an ancient lakeside in what is now Yorkshire, these antler-bone headdresses were placed into the water on purpose. Maybe in a tradition that would continue on and off all the way up to Roman Britain and beyond, as a form of ritual deposition, to separate them from the world of the living. Even at this early stage in British history, water sites such as this may have been marked places. Certain wells, springs, waterfalls and lakes being seen as separate and apart from the everyday world. A tradition that would continue well into the Neolithic and beyond, for example with the shrine of Sulis Minerva at Bath, and even the Arthurian legend of Excalibur being retrieved from the Lady in the Lake, a tale with Iron Age antecedents. Many of these sites would later become part of early Christian tradition too. Mesolithic people may have felt themselves much more a part of nature than we do today. Living in the modern world, we cut ourselves off from it. They were dependent on it in a spiritual sense as much as a practical one. But as we know, nature can be a very cruel master. Perhaps these headdresses found at Starkar were deposited in the water to placate nature spirits. Just like swords and high prestige items in later generations. In terms of their day-to-day use, before they were deposited, ideas range from hunting, shamanistic rituals, display, and a combination of all these. Perhaps the wearer thought themselves to become part beast in an early form of religious tradition. Though no sculpted wood and very little stone from the Middle Stone Age survives in Britain, we find incredible examples from elsewhere, such as the Elk's Head of Huttenen, dated to between 8,000 and 9,000 years ago, one of the best-known archaeological finds in Finland, and the majestic Shigir Idol of Russia, made in around 9,500 BC, by people living very similar lifestyles to those in Britain. Surely something similar must have been made on long nights around the campfire, maybe even put into postholes left on the landscape. From around 5,800 to 4,000 BC, a warm, wet period kicks in known as the Atlantic. The number of hunter-gatherer sites in Ireland and Britain increases. Unique regional variances between cultures begin to become noticeable by this time in the last flourishing of the Middle Stone Age. By this time, most of mainland Europe had changed irrevocably with far more populous groups getting ever closer, generation by generation. In 1999, just off the coast of the Isle of Wight in southern Britain, a lobster was spotted moving around flint tools on the seabed. Soon enough, the underwater archaeologists moved in, and one of the most important Mesolithic sites ever found in Britain began to be uncovered. Dating to around 6,000 BC, timber architectural work here at Boldener's Cliff was found to be so advanced that it was previously only associated with the arrival of the Neolithic some 2,000 years later. Some sort of a boat-making workshop further suggested far-reaching links with the continent. In 2015, however, the plot thickened even further. A DNA study uncovered evidence of wheat at the site, a crop not thought to have arrived in Britain for thousands of years to come. Though the site remains controversial, with many researchers arguing that the wheat is a later contamination, it certainly hammers home an important point. As soon as that small grain arrived on the island, everything was to change. In the centuries around 4000 BC, a collection of new technologies would drastically alter life in Britain. A Promethean revolution as significant to the human story as the harnessing of fire. For this was the very moment our ancestors stepped outside of nature, the basis of the modern world. just as the Mesolithic had a distinctive toolkit recognizable by archeologists, honed over millions of years since human-like animals first used tools. So too did the Neolithic. For this is the time when a new culture definitively appears all over Britain, along with fossilized wheat, barley, domesticated animals, and pottery. Just as affluent hunter-gatherers had turned animals into servants in the Fertile Crescent, agriculture would in turn domesticate the rest of the human race. The Neolithic wasn't like the industrial or agricultural revolutions of modern times. It was much slower and more gradual largely imperceptible to those living through it. Whereas before, almost all activity had been to do with gathering food, this newfound surplus provided by the Neolithic package would be the basis and springboard for everything that would follow. Workers, warriors, Priests. Power. In time, bureaucrats, craftsmen, builders, economies of scale, division of labour, trading economies, social hierarchy, intricate artwork and architecture. Temples, towns, cities and civilizations. Though productive for the group overall, for the individual, this societal change came with a price. Once the old skills of the forest are lost and a farming society adopted, if crops fail, with a far larger population now to feed, a much more devastating collapse is on the cards. Also, due to animal husbandry, and generally living in a much dirtier environment than before, due to population rise and the refuse that comes with it, disease was much more rife and dangerous than before. Along with a much less varied diet due to reliance on just a few crops, especially as time goes on and increasingly only higher status individuals have regular access to meat. The transition from a wild diet to domesticated food was the most critical shift in all of human history, though to those who lived through it, it happened in stops and starts, gradually shifting along. Yet, once the ball was rolling, it was near impossible to get out of the trap. the growing population itself would spur on more growth, in turn, until it was unstoppable. A tipping point and knock-on cumulative effect, putting more and more pressure on the environment, and in turn, pressuring younger males to push out on their own to create new settlements at a scale never seen before, carrying their way of life wherever they went. Everything in world history that followed stemmed from these animals and plants. Agriculture has appeared spontaneously all over the world, wherever and whenever plants susceptible to the moulding hands of humans and the right climatic conditions exist. From Peruvian highlands to Chinese river valleys, each creating a unique package to spread to surrounding hunter-gatherers. To our story and that of much of the Eurasian world, the most significant of these instances occurred in the Middle East around 12,000 years ago. Interestingly, a site found on the Sea of Galilee named Ahalo II, dated tentatively to around 23,000 years ago, hints at a settlement reliant on fish and possibly grain, with evidence for early sickle blades for harvesting being present. Though this remains a controversial site, and it seems to have failed after a time, Nevertheless, it does suggest a less clear-cut harnessing of agriculture than ever thought before. Perhaps with many failed experiments along the way. It isn't for another 10,000 years at least that the harvesting of seeds stuck. Perhaps occurring as a result of climate change during the harsh Younger Dryas, with other ideas put forward, such as the feasting hypothesis, with local strongmen wishing to amass enough food so they can impress their neighbours. The first solid evidence of humans altering their environment by harnessing crops and animals on a wide scale is found in the Fertile Crescent at the end of the Last Ice Age. This is a region where eight so-called founder crops appear. Emmer and einkorn wheat, barley, peas, lentils, chickpeas, flax and bitter vetch. Wheat was probably the first, though no exact consensus has been reached. Interestingly, fig trees are also found in the record, hinting at an early form of horticulture as people carried seeds around with them to plant, potentially before the harvesting of wheat. A similar way of life to that which evolved independently in the Amazon rainforest on the far side of the world. Soon enough, permanent towns and early cities began to develop at sites such as Jericho. Over the coming generations, the new way of life gradually spread across Anatolia, until finally, by as early as 9,000 BC, Neolithic farmers came across the waters to take up residence on the islands of the Aegean, the first part of Europe to be populated by these people. By 7,000 BC, yet more Anatolian farmers left their homelands to cross into Europe their descendants wouldn't stop until they reached the English Channel. Living singular lifetimes as they did, this onward march, reminiscent of the long durée spoken of by influential 20th century historian Fernand Braudel, would have been imperceptible to them, though it remains pivotal to European history as we know it. The Europe these people entered was a very different world to the one from which they stemmed. Here, they found a thickly forested continent, seemingly with no end. Over a period of several thousand years, much of this woodland would be hacked and burned down. The farmers practising slash and burn agriculture. In many areas, trees would never return. But what happened to the people who already lived there? Well, there is evidence of at least some hunter-gatherer groups seeming to adopt the new lifestyle of the farmers, as is shown in Stefan Milo's excellent video on southeastern Europe, and in particular the Lepenski Vir culture in modern-day Serbia. I highly recommend Stefan Milo's excellent series of videos on this subject. DNA evidence, however, tends to suggest that the LBK culture, which spread along the river valleys of central Europe to the west, was a mostly demographic expansion. The descendants of Anatolian farmers who had crossed over the waters some 1500 years before, and since penetrated deep into the interior, hacking and burning away the old forest. This farming culture, appearing alongside new genetic ancestry from the Aegean, wherever it went. However, in other areas, there can also be found a small component from the Western hunter-gatherers. Suggesting that as these new farmers were moving through the unfamiliar forests and grasslands of Europe, they were also mixing with the local hunter-gatherer people. It may simply be that the farmers were so numerous that even if continuous mixing occurred, the hunters left a much smaller mark on the overall DNA profiles of Neolithic farming groups. By the 5th millennium BC, they were at the English Channel. On a clear day, the white cliffs of Dover visible on the horizon. In 1983, an amateur archaeologist in Ireland found an ancient flint knife on the windswept southwestern coast. Initially, he believed the find to be Neolithic in origin. But, when official investigations began just over a decade later, the site, known as Ferritus Cove, in fact turned out to have been inhabited by Mesolithic hunters from as early as the 7th millennium BC. In itself, this wasn't particularly unusual, many such sites being found in the area. In 2012, however, after animal remains at the site were analysed, the results sent shockwaves through the archeological community. Carbon dated to around 4,350 BC, and found in a Mesolithic context, were cow and sheep bones. Not the native European auroch, a far larger, still wild beast, destined to become extinct. But a smaller animal, descended from the aurochs of the Middle East, long since domesticated thousands of years before. This could mean only one thing. Neolithic farmers, or at least, products of their lifestyle, were in Ireland hundreds of years earlier than previously thought, and, astonishingly, found within a hunter-gatherer camp. Were these bones the result of a wide-ranging sea voyage from the continent? Perhaps gifts from the lands beyond the sea? Or, had they been taken in a raid upon a Neolithic settlement? We simply don't know. But, Ferriter's Cove isn't alone. Three other late Mesolithic sites on the coasts of Britain and Ireland have been found to contain the bones of domesticated animals. Is this evidence of a trade network with links to the continent? Or simply hunter-gatherers doing what they'd always done, but this time hunting the new animals brought in by incoming farmers? Ranging far and wide due to population congestion and a culture of patrilineal inheritance in mainland Europe. We can't be sure But within a few hundred years, hunter-gatherer sites here, and all over Britain and Ireland, all but disappear, replaced by those of the farmers. This region of Southern Ireland in particular is covered by a vast landscape of early Neolithic farmland, known as the Chade Fields, found in peat bogs. The nature of the transition from Mesolithic to Neolithic Britain has been subject to intense debate for many decades. Until the 1960s, it was usually seen as the result of an influx of new people from the continent, who then, because of the Neolithic package, soon outbred the hunters, taking over the land and replacing them. By the 1970s, however, this approach was largely rejected as too simplistic a view. A new hypothesis was suggested, one that argued for late Mesolithic hunter-gatherer communities, perhaps in contact with their continental neighbours, adopting the Neolithic package on their own voluntarily, which then spread across the islands via already existing systems of social connectivity. More recently still, in part due to new DNA evidence uncovered over the last decade, the argument has shifted yet again. On the continent, many mass graves are found which date to the Neolithic period. But the question remains, were these the result of internal conflicts within the farmer societies? Though we do have evidence of violence within hunter-gatherer societies too, particularly during the later 5th millennium BC. In a world of defined boundaries, with competition for commodities such as fishing grounds or animal migration camps, Antlers weren't just fashioned into tools, but weapons of war too. Trespass into another's land at your own risk. Particularly during leaner times, hunter-gatherers would have been more than a match for any Neolithic farmer. But, of course, living in a highly competitive and populated world, the farmers were adept at war, too. This U-bow, found in peat in the Somerset Levels, was probably used mostly for hunting. Though, in the right hands, this would be a highly efficient killing machine. By the mid-5th millennium BC, the Danubian Neolithic and the Cardial Ware Neolithic had been reaching their collective tendrils towards Britain for many centuries, each having taken different routes into Europe from Anatolia. These newcomers weren't by any means unified people, each small clan probably being independent from the next. When they eventually met in what is now modern-day France, some of these groups had been apart culturally from one another for thousands of years, potentially being just as hostile to each other, if not more, as they were against Mesolithic hunters. This was a frontier zone of disparate tribes, of mixing and merging cultural traditions with diverse geographical origins It seems reasonable to assume that for hunter-gatherers in Britain during the later centuries of the 5th millennium BC, there would have been at least sporadic contact with the lands beyond the sea. Maybe with just certain intrepid individuals becoming traders or emissaries between groups. This decorated oak timber found at Merdy in North Wales may be evidence of Mesolithic people emulating designs found engraved on stones now incorporated into megalithic tombs in Brittany. The Mesolithic world on the cusp of the Neolithic is a complex and fascinating period, the last flourishing of ancient Europe. People worked bone and wood, sometimes with impressive skill, even constructing monumental architecture, such as this vast series of stone enclosures in Finland, dating to the fourth millennium BC. Known as the Giant's Churches, these sites, as many as 200 existing in some form or another, are thought to have been built by hunter-gatherers on the cusp of adopting farming techniques. There are many theories about these sites, but for the most part, they remain a mystery. It's been suggested that the individual lives of early Neolithic societies in Britain and Ireland don't seem to have been altogether different from their Mesolithic forebears. The cumulative effect and populousness of the latter group creating change over generations rather than singular lifetimes perhaps overlapping and washing against each other, with farmers eventually outbreeding the hunters, with no set cut-off between the two lifestyles once they came into contact with one another. Nevertheless, in the centuries between 4200 and 3800 BC, Britain would be irrevocably changed forever. Year by year, more of the old forest was cut back to make room for cultivated land, as new food strategies arrived from the continent. Archaeologists like Alison Sheridan talk of a number of different strands of Neolithisation in Britain, taking place at roughly the same time in various different regions. This series of megalithic tombs, dating to around 4100 BC at Coldrum in Kent, is one early example. Perhaps evidence of farmers jumping over the channel at the closest point, maybe originating in the Paris Basin. Yet, at the same time, far to the north, they were in what is now Scotland. Constructing vast longhouses, along with their cultivated grains, animals, axes and pottery. The first artificial material ever made in Britain. Made from mud fired in extremely hot kilns to create something entirely new. Each one sculpted by the hands of master craftspeople. The potter's wheel not having been invented yet. Experts like Sheridan look at pottery in particular to decipher the origins of particular groups. Most of the examples found in Britain hint at a fully formed technology already harnessed for millennia. Hunter-gatherers had always used birch or wood instead of pottery, which they had no particular need for. Yet, likewise, today, we have no need of mobile phones. But once you start using one, you don't go back. Arguably more so than any of the other new innovations coming into Britain, it was pottery that opened Pandora's box, allowing humans to step outside of the natural world by storing their food for leaner times. Many other sites were settled by incoming farmers during this early period. The west of Ireland being one area. Perhaps settled by people moving out of Brittany to head into Spain too. The axe heads here being extremely well made, suggesting a rich and prosperous people. Neolithic settlement in Britain is unusual seeming very spread out and random in places. On Orkney, for example, there is some evidence in the form of a mainland European vole not found anywhere else in Britain, that the islands may have been settled directly from the continent. Perhaps these groups had been pushed out by demographic pressure and sought to avoid pre-existing settlements to find uninhabited land further north. Other settlements seem to have come fully formed from the Rhine into what is now Lowland Scotland, building vast longhouses there. Yet, they didn't all survive, suffering from collapse after a few centuries, just like their LBK forebears on the continent. The first few centuries of Britain's Neolithic era were messy and chaotic. A frontier society of people seeking new beginnings. Though it may be that hunters and farmers only tended to meet in peripheral inland areas. At first, the farmers mostly living by the sea. Inland sites do tend to contain both Mesolithic and Neolithic material. Maybe with the use of plants and animals limited in certain areas, New kinds of hybrid communities of hunters and farmers existed for a time. Soon enough, however, all this was to change. Early Neolithic builders beginning to construct not just settlements, but in time, great trackways known as cursus monuments, rudimentary fortifications, flint mining on a vast scale, and megalithic architecture. It is to these places, perhaps with their roots lying in the Iberian Peninsula several hundred years before, mass tombs such as at Coldrum in Kent, containing the last burial places of these farmers, that we can now look for evidence. In the last couple of decades, A groundbreaking paradigm shift, almost on the level of the radiocarbon revolution, has been taking place in the field of archaeology. Allowing researchers an entirely new window into looking at the prehistoric past. DNA evidence. Though only a handful of individuals have so far been tested, we can arrive at a picture of at least a small section of Neolithic society. At the passage tomb of Ballyna in County Down, Ireland for example, several individuals seem to have predominantly near-eastern DNA, with close affinities to groups found on the Iberian Peninsula, and very little from the western hunter-gatherers who inhabited Britain before them. This is the same for many Neolithic remains that have been tested, seeming to agree with the pottery evidence showing highly developed settler societies moving in. Convincing, but hardly conclusive evidence of a complete takeover. In life, those buried in the tombs were presumably high-status individuals. Not your average Neolithic farmer. It's no wonder these people, or at least their ancestors, had been travellers. They'd gambled, and it had paid off. the average Neolithic farmer may well have still used techniques of excarnation to dispose of the dead, leaving their bodies to the elements, and thus wouldn't be found by us today. Who is to say that at least some Mesolithic people didn't adopt farming too, being assimilated by the incoming farmer societies? Maybe they survived by being useful After all, they knew the land. The DNA picture isn't as simple as replacement. Farmers on Oban in the Hebrides show a mixed Breton, Neolithic, and British Western hunter-gatherer profile. But perhaps most astonishingly of all, when residents of the Cheddar region in Somerset had their DNA tested in a landmark study to uncover if any connections with Cheddar Man existed. A local teacher could trace his genetic code all the way back to that Western hunter-gatherer who lived 9,000 years before. Often frontier societies are the most dynamic because of the intermixing of different groups. And early Neolithic Britain was no exception, soon enough embarking on an epic age of megalithic building, unsurpassed in all of Europe. Just maybe this could have been, at least in part, the result of a mixing of both ways of life. The best explanation today is that the hunter-gatherer population of Britain just wasn't very high in comparison to the newcomers. They did mix, but left little genetic legacy overall. Down the long millennia to come, throughout all of human history to the present, farming societies have revered hunting, holding it up as a noble pursuit, fit only for the highest echelons of society, often using it as a status symbol Rather than inhabiting a world of man versus nature, this was now a world of those with power and those without. Next time, we'll be looking at Neolithic Britain and the incredible culture of monuments and megaliths that came with it. The age of the stone circles. You've been watching History Time Don't forget to like and subscribe, and I'll see you on the next one.